Wild, Precious Life is brought to you in part by Aesop's Fable in Holliston, Massachusetts, an independent bookshop with a focus on inspiring creativity and growth in readers of all ages. And by the Terrateer Club, a holistic online community helping parents raise kids who will care for the earth and change the world. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Welcome to Wild Precious Life, a podcast about dreaming big and making real connections. In each episode, I talk to prize-winning writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs who teach all of us how to make the most of the time we have. There is a saying often attributed to the writer George Eliot, it's never too late to be what you might have been. I thought about those words throughout my conversation with today's guest, Francisco Stork who spent decades of his adulthood working at one job, but felt in his heart that he was called to do another. Francisco is a grandfather now, and he just published his ninth book. I think for a lot of us, we put our dreams on a timeline. We figure that we need to finish this degree to get to that job or find this partner or make this amount of money. And we believe our paths should be like everyone else's or that we need to hit all the same marks. But that doesn't make any sense, does it? We need to find our own way in our own time. And I think happiness, true happiness, comes from listening to those calls, wandering down those paths we've always wondered about and not putting a time limit on our dreams. Francisco helped me think about that today. I hope he'll do the same for you. Let's get started. Our guest today is Francisco X. Stork, author of the young adult novel On the Hook. At the age of seven, Francisco announced that he wanted to be a writer. So his parents gave him his first typewriter. When Francisco grew up, he studied Latin American literature at Harvard. However, despite his dreams of becoming a writer, he took a 33-year detour into the law, including 15 years as a lawyer at Mass Housing, a state agency dedicated to financing affordable housing for those who need it. Francisco is now retired from legal work. He has recently published his ninth book, and he lives and writes outside of Boston. Francisco Stork, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad, to, glad to talk to you. I should be totally honest right off the bat. I read On the Hook recently, and this is a book about violence, addiction, poverty, vengeance, these are not all of our usual things here. <laughs> They're not all usual themes here on this show. But I want to get into some of that. But first, I actually just want you to introduce yourself. Not everyone will be familiar with you or your work. I'm not talking about the the name tag intro or the or the book jacket intro. I'm more interested in the wandering, meandering, longer tale of what brings you here today. Well, I, you know, I was born in Mexico a long, long time ago. I think some of the key events in my life that through um, a long time thinking about and self-analysis <laughs> have influenced some of my work, I think have been, my mother was a single mother. I never knew my biological father. And until I was adopted by Charlie Stork when I was seven, the man who gave me the typewriter that you mentioned, I think there was probably some some kind of a insecurity in my life, you know, growing up without a father. And I, and I, and I noticed that in some of my books that comes out, you know, the search, the search for the father and, and the disappointment in, in the father. Probably the other thing that's important for me is, is that we moved to El Paso, Texas when I was with Charlie Stork when I was nine years old, didn't know any English. And then I proceeded to slowly, you know, learn, learn the language. 
And I think that for a long time, especially after Charlie Stork died a few years later, I think that for a long time, what what affected me the most was this kind of this feeling of not belonging, you know, because I was very at home in Mexico and all of a sudden you're disrupted. And and then my the father that I had grown to love and befriend died. And so there followed a long period of searching and, and of trying to find something in my life that would that would fill, you know, the absence. And I and I think that that's when I started I started keeping a journal and I started writing. You know, I, I like the way that you describe that the detour of 33 years that I took. <laughs> That's a very, very kind way of <laughs> putting it. I had to make a living and I'm very, I'm very happy for my legal profession in the sense that I, I was able to give provide for my family. But it was also kind of a soul, a soul detour. And, and, and in many ways, you know, it's the kind of there was a feeling of waste that I wasn't really utilizing kind of what was given to me. So. So that period of my life was characterized by kind of finding, you know, the the time in the mornings and in the evenings after I came back from work to to write and to kind of and to kind of address that other side of me that was the the desire to do something with writing. You said a soul detour, like S O U L, a soul detour. I love this idea. I think in the last year, a lot of us have taken detours, many of which we have not wanted to take many of which have led us to places we didn't want to be. But I do also think there's been this opportunity to ask ourselves about our priorities. What is it we love? How can we do more of that? And I think those are soul detours, both into and out of those things. I like the way that you put that. So you learned English here when you came to the States around the age of nine, you said? Yes. I remember we came in in June and then I started school. I started school in, like I said, August, you know, so so I only had a couple of months before I was in school. And I, I remember, you know, in Mexico, I was kind of like hot stuff because I was I already knew how to read and the teachers would call me to the front of the room. And I had this facility for telling stories, you know, and and all of that was just like, poof, gone. You know, the minute I stepped into <laughs> into the class and they sent me, you know, immediately they sent me to the fifth grade, you know, because I didn't instead of being in the sixth grade and they sent me back at a grade. And and then on top of that, in Texas in those days, they had this uh, they had this rule that if you were caught speaking Spanish in the in the school grounds, you would be they send you to the principal and you get whacked with this little board with holes in it, you know. So, so you can imagine that that didn't do a, a great things for a, for a young person's self esteem, right? You, here's your language that you've been speaking and you're you're very good at, you know, and all of a sudden it's like a, you're punished for it. Oh my gosh. My husband uh, was in his family was in the military, so he actually attended kindergarten. He would tell you he attended several kindergartens because he was held <laughs> back in Germany. And so he was sent to school. He didn't know German. He was sent to school knowing the word toilet and <laughs> knowing the word please. And that was it. And he was held back because he he didn't know the language. And he describes that as being particularly terrifying in the beginning and then once he could overcome it and speak German, that it, it opened up the world to him. But do you have any memories of not knowing how to say words you needed to say? Or do you have a moment when you were stuck between languages? Do you remember anything about that time? That the first time that they asked me to read in class was, was very traumatic. You know, I mean, the teacher asked me to read something. I, was, I think it was history here, you know. I try to do my best, you know pretend that I knew <laughs> it was obvious that I couldn't. Then it was it was just it was very humiliating. You mentioned that in Texas at that time, people were encouraged to speak English and English only. I think I've noticed that in, in books as well, that at least now we're encouraged. And I think writers are welcome to include more of other languages in in the text. And so there was lots of Spanish in On the Hook. And it's not like you defined mierda 
for people who don't know what that word means, right? I, it, we just, we got it from context clues that that if I am a bilingual reader or if I'm someone who speaks Spanish, I will see myself represented in your book. And I really appreciated that, that the Spanish language permeated this world, that it wasn't just an English only always translation. Do you think moving around as a child helped you to become a writer? Yeah, I mean, I think that they... Uh that to the extent that you have like different experiences that all that comes into play, you know, in, in your writing, it just, it just gives you, whether you're aware of it or not, I mean, just more, more characters to draw from, more settings to draw from, more situations, you know, so that's definitely came into play in, you know, and even when I, when I get in, when I got into college, it became more moving around and seeking different kind of settings and experiences became more of a conscious choice as a way of preparing myself for writing. You know, I remember like working with the migrant farm workers in Alabama and spending a summer in, in South Dakota with Native American children, you know, and spending two years of living in with people with mental disabilities, you know, and, and all of those things. I mean, I just like, uh, there was always like a sense of like, I'm really, I'm really kind of like learning things, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I am kind of uh, getting into the mind of people that are very different from me, which you know, had a big role when I started writing and, and how the kind of kind of books that I wrote and what attracted me to to different things. Absolutely. I think there's an outsiderness. You talk about wanting to belong as a child, feeling distant from a language or from a culture, but I do think there's an outsiderness that allows you to see something that you might not see if you're within a community. You mentioned three different things that you didn't include in your meandering introduction. So I would love it if you would tell us about living with the mentally ill or, or among a Native American population or in, I think you said Alabama. Tell us about one of those. I'd love to hear, drill down a little and, and hear what you did and what you learned. Sure. Well, you know, and, and uh, when I was in college and I went to a little, a little Catholic school in Alabama called Spring Hill College in Mobile, Mobile Alabama. And at the end of my second year, I got a job with the, with, the, with the Alabama Department of Mental Health living, I guess we'd say, with like five mentally handicapped, mentally disabled men in a kind of, they call it a halfway home, which are, which are kind of a, a, a midway station between full independence and institutionalized, institutionalization, you know. So there would be a couple of regular people that would be with them during the week, and then I would go in and, and give them a break during the weekends. And then in my last year, I, I moved full time into a uh, an organization. It's it's a faith based organization called Larsh. is formed of communities where where the mentally disabled and the so called neurotypical people live together without kind of too much distinction. <laughs> and we help each other. The idea is that that we learn from each other, and and there was it is kind of fascinating to to think of the things that that you learn from from people that you would not consider kind of intellectual equals, you know, in some ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you find, I'm not trying to accuse you of not being YA, but from the sound of your voice, you don't sound like you're in high school anymore. Do you find <laughs> there are, do you find there are challenges of being a, a, an adult writing for, for teenagers or is it freeing? How do you, how do you do that as an adult writing for young people? Yeah, you know, I think that it just it just comes natural, you know, to me. I think to to write about young characters. I mean, it was I the first book that I wrote. I wanted to write a book for my then teenage kids, you know, about a young boy kind of growing up in the projects of El Paso, which is kind of I wanted them to see a different side of life. You know, here we were living a comfortable life in the suburbs of Boston, and they were on their way to to a very good college, and and I just wanted them to say, look, you know, I. 
this is not all there is. <laughs> yeah. So the best way that I could do was kind of describe some of the things, some of these things that I experienced when I was growing up in El Paso. Are you a child at heart? Do you have a youthful, I don't know, are you playful? Yeah, you, like- no, I, think, I think so. When I play with my grandson, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm like him, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little kid playing with him. And I think that that's the kind of attitude of playfulness that you have to maintain to be able to pretend, you know, that this, this and, and, and just to be comfortable pretending. I can't think of a, uh, of a quality for a writer that is more important, right? The ability to become someone different. Well, then I have to ask you what it was like to spend more than three decades becoming someone different <laughs> as a lawyer for your job job. I mean, what what was that like to be a lawyer who wanted to be a writer or or are they the same job, just you're writing different things? Well, I think I think it's, you know, I, the best way to describe that is, I mean, you call it a detour, but I, I, I would say that I was like lost, you know, <laughs> and lost in the sense of like, like uh, forgetting about what my purpose in life was really, and then dedicating myself to some other kind of ambition. And so I got caught up in this sort of like working for prestigious firms and the money and and trying to trying to look good to these partners, you know, and, and this this whole kind of a world that's kind of consumes you, you know, until so I, I think for a lot of those years it was very painful, you know. It was I was in the wrong place. And I would I would stay in a job for three years or so and then they would ask me to leave or I would get bored and find something else, you know, and Eventually, in my 40s, after I started writing, I, I started looking for these jobs working for state agencies, which were, they had a good, you know, working for affordable housing, for example, was the, was the best job that I've ever had in the legal profession. Yeah, I've, I actually want to ask you about that, because I have to confess that I, my husband went to law school, and I don't always understand what a lawyer does. I know it's important. I know everywhere I look, there are lawyers. But for instance, in the case of your work for mass housing, what was your role? And and how did you help try to make housing more affordable? Because I find this compelling, but I'm not sure I understand. What did you guys do? <laughs> well, ma- mass housing is basically like a, was like a bank, you know, that is funded through the sale of bonds. And what they do is they lend, they lend money to developers who are willing to dedicate a certain percentage of their units to people who are below a certain income level. And so we created what's, what's called like mixed income housing, you know, where, where it wasn't like public housing that everybody was poor. It was basically 60% were paid regular rent and 40%, you know, were below. And so it was, it was there, there were like good projects. And the idea was, you know, there was no distinction really as to who was poor and who was not poor. And so that, that was sort of the ideal. And what I did was just, uh, you know, I took care of the documents, the, the mortgage, the Making sure that that the sites were environmentally okay, you know, the zoning and and uh, the financing documents, so that so it was really negotiating and creating, you know, creating documents. But there was a there was a good end, you know, at the at the other, and and I could see I could see my work by 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 whenever I drove by or I visited one of these places. So. Yeah, so having people to get a roof over their heads and and to not necessarily have to live in the kinds of, well, I mean, within On the Hook, we see Hector and his family with this opportunity, right? They're living in a housing development in a, in, in the projects, they might say, and they yeah. have the opportunity to get out and move to a neighborhood that's made available to them by the help of someone Hector's father worked for and and his brother worked for. And that, so it sounds, it if I were to think about a little bit of autobiographical in, intrusion into On the Hook, 
Manny, this character who helps facilitate this opportunity for this family, that's similar to the work you were doing at Mass Housing. Yeah. I mean, I never thought about it that way, but thank you for pointing that out. That's the nice thing about these interviews. You know, you learn stuff about your books that you never... (laughs) (laughs) At one point early in this story, Hector quotes, he's reading an essay for for a, a contest he's won. And he quotes, um, and it's an abridged quote by Immanuel Kant, and it's the, happiness is the fulfillment of duty. Yeah. And I'm thinking about that with respect to your life story. And I'm wondering if you, do you think this is true? Is happiness the fulfillment of duty? The older that I get and the more that I live, the more I realize that, you know, that there is in, 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 the, in fulfilling the obligations that life sets out for you, your family, you know, your neighbors, you know, your society and, and trying to do your, you know, those little tasks that come to you, that there is a certain, there is a certain happiness that maybe, maybe we have to redefine happiness a little bit in terms of like feeling good, you know, because I, I, sometimes it doesn't quite feel good to do this. I have to get, get up and go to work every jobs that I didn't like for so many years, you know, but there was a sense that I was, that I was kind of doing the right thing. You really can't separate the sense of joy from from obligation. And I guess joy maybe is a little bit better word than than happiness. Sure. I can think of some people my age, many people my age, who are fulfilling a duty to their families, who are working jobs, all of us working jobs we don't necessarily love, but that pay for the things that our children need or want. There's a satisfaction that comes from providing for other people. But I think you might be right that that true happiness might be more outward bound and that it comes uh, from serving others, whether it's providing them with a roof over their heads or a story that helps a young person see him or herself reflected on the page. Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. You describe this feeling of that the adult prison as as you use the word sinister. And I've I've been inside of facilities. I did some volunteer training in Los Angeles in order to teach writing in a juvenile detention center there. I worked in a rehabilitative program in Florida for a couple of years. So I've been inside of the barbed wire. I've heard the sound of the gate closing behind you when you're locked in. But I know a lot of people have not. And I'm wondering, um, you know, I'm wondering how you created a world that felt and smelled and sounded so real. Did, have you spent much time in facilities? How did you, what's your research process for that? <laughs> when I was in Alabama, we used to visit a, a, a prisoner who was in uh, life in prison, you know, and he would take us to his cell. And then, you know, he would, uh, the scene in, in Hector where he, he visits a prison, you know, they're trying to scare him into, into, into being good. It's pretty similar to what I experienced when I visited that prisoner in Alabama, you know, the, the sandwich that tastes like cardboard, you know, and the bologna that it's probably like three weeks old. 
I mean, that kind of, and then, and but also the sense of, you know, like you say, like doors closing behind you and going through corridors that if somebody wasn't there to guide you, you would absolutely get lost, you know? And, and so, you know, in, in the abstract, you say, uh, well, I could deal with that, you know, but once you're in there, <laughs> it's a different sense. And you sort of realize kind of like the hopelessness is just a word, but it, unless you are in a situation where you can actually feel it, you can feel what, what, what hopelessness is, you know, and in, in, in your bones. And that's what I, you know, that's what I kind of try to describe in, in those books. Being physically trapped somewhere can also lead to being mentally trapped in your mind. And we see this in Hector in On the Hook, that he is a, a smart kid, a loving kid. But we see after he becomes physically trapped in a place, we see him also be pretty mentally trapped in a loop of violence and what it means to what it means to find balance. And those were some parts of the the book that I think I could see resonating with kids in the system, right? If you've been a victim of violence all your life, then violence could seem like a real answer, right? If people have hurt you and hurt those you loved, then it seems like that would be the answer to then hurt others. When I entered the world of that story, I felt like I had to put the rules of my world over here and embrace the world that Hector was learning to live in. Um, and I found myself uncomfortable sometimes with that because I don't want those rules to be right. I don't want, for instance, oh, when you talk about cowardice, I don't actually want courage to be finding my way to live with cowardice. But I know that that's true in your, in your book. I don't want respect and disrespect and stupid. I don't want these things to be meaningless. But in, in the book, they really are. Do you think that we're all capable of violence if we're just pressed? When I look out in my world today, I, I see a prevalence of, of hatred. You know, we started off by being by feeling that it was okay to be angry because we were justified at being angry at some of the things that were happening, you know, in, in our world. And then and then it was okay to like say, well, uh, to you know, just to hatred, which is just like it's a personalized kind of anger where you direct it at, at, at a particular group, you know. Obviously, that 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 has always existed. It just it just seems to me that it's more on the surface and more and more acceptable. If you you know you look at at the at social media and 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 even people you know you don't even realize that that some of the things that you are saying are are tinged with a level of of hatred. You know, and then so, but for some reason, you know, hatred becomes like a like an energy and it's addictive, right? Because all of a sudden you got you got a path, you got something to look forward to, something to fight for. And so the idea is, is that, you know, from there to violence, to actually actualizing, you know, the, the hatred is just a, just a very small step for Hector. How is he going to unhook himself from, from hatred? Because we can't just say, I'm not going to hate it, you know, and, and that, and that goes away. I mean, it, I think there's a, there needs to be like a process where, where you become, you disengage from hatred, you know, uh, a, a process of self-awareness, and of other awareness. I mean, in some ways, it, those, in those things, you know, Hector begins to see the humanity in this person that he hates, you know, even though he doesn't want to. <laughs> the kid's humanity is forced upon him in a way that, you know, he begins to see himself in some ways in, in this other person. I've often thought working with teenagers that hatred and anger, when I see those on the outside, I think that's just sadness often on the inside, that it's trying to find its way out and it comes out Sadness seems too vulnerable, and so it comes out as anger. And I, in your book, you you wrote, it's a lot easier to hate than it is to mourn. 
right? When something terrible, heartbreaking happens to you, it's much easier to be angry than it is to let that big, sad feeling out. I remember when my father, who has since passed away, but when my father was diagnosed with brain cancer, I took up boxing. I am not a particularly big or violent person, but I needed, physically needed to hit things. I needed a physical place to put my anger and my rage. And I see this also in your book, Hector and and Joey, these two boys who are sent to the same facility, they have that same need. They need to have a physical place to put their their sadness, but also their their anger and their rage. Do you think that these physical altercations are, are part of the grieving process, helpful to the grieving process to be physical? Do you think that's a, a you know, a, a healthy way to, to move through sadness and anger? I think that there is a... Um... There's a part in the book where where the teacher at at the at the school where Hector and Joey end up, you know, the, the reform school, tries to teach him this this kind of a a method of a kind of a he calls it um, dumbbells for the mind or something, you know, and, and it's basically lifting lifting very light weights and learning to concentrate on the muscles that you're using while you lift, you know, and it's kind of like a yoga, right? It's like yoga was was a meditative practice before it became like a, a very popular. <laughs> exercise thing but basically the idea is that is that you're you have to train your mind to awareness you know it's not it's not it doesn't come easy and that and that focusing the mind you know for somebody like joey and hector you know focusing on the breath is probably not going to work but it might work you know lifting these little weights and jumping rope and just there's a sense in which in which body movement the basketball you know the kind of semi-violent basketball games that these guys have and even even the school, which is which you know prohibits violence, allows these kind of grudge matches with with like thick gloves, you know. Because I think that there's there's a there is a connection that need, that that you have to. There's an awareness that comes with with the expression of your you know of your body. I'm not sure that it that it necessarily cures hatred. I mean, in, in some ways, for example, I, I notice that when I feel angry and I let that anger kind of come out in a word or in an act, that I feel worse, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I wish I had it when, where I keep it inside. I, I'm okay, you know. But the minute I just like let it slip out, then it's kind of it's all over. I'm not really like advocating expression, <laughs> physical expressions of your anger. You know, maybe go hit a pillow or something. But I, <laughs> but I do think that it's it that some aware awareness comes to us, you know, by by uh, by being aware of, of the things we want to do with our body <laughs> and what and what's behind them. Absolutely. I can see that. Um, there's a point early in the book where I think Hector says something like, all will be well. And I, I had picked up this book fully well knowing that all was not going to be well. And yet I kept reading. And I was wondering, you know, why do we like to re- read about characters when we know bad things are going to happen to them? I picked this up knowing this, that all was not going to be well, but I kept reading. Why do we, we want to read about characters who are going through difficulties? I think that the only way that that you do that is because even before you realize that uh, the things are going to be difficult, there's already a trust that you feel coming from the author, you know, and it's a trust that that this is a hopeful, despite the difficulty of the subject matter, that this is a this is a hopeful book. And I think that 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 it's very, you know, those first few pages, I start reading and I know whether this is an author I can trust or whether he's just there to manipulate me or make a quick buck or something, you know. Or maybe he's just doing it. You know, he's really interested in that movie rights and he could give a crap about me. <laughs> but, but within a few pages, I think you, I mean, I'm, 
the only reason you kept on going is I'll, I'll take full credit for it is because you trusted <laughs> <laughs> that I had some a good that I that I had like a a, a good heart and that I wasn't going to let help you know and that and that the and that the book was going to be hopeful not necessarily a happy ending but a, but a hopeful ending in the sense of, of kids discovering who they are and, and finding you know their ways to to express courage in a, in in a way that in the everyday you know it takes a lot of courage to go to school every day it takes a lot of courage to to refrain yourself from like doing what everybody else expects you to do so those those are the kind of that's the kind of courage that I wanted to to show at the end of the book. It's just in there, I liked that you said there's a difference between a happy ending and a hopeful ending. And I don't think anyone's ever told me that before. I don't think I've ever thought about it before. We've gone to the movies to see happy endings. But I mean, as I just mentioned, my father died of brain cancer last year. It's not a happy ending for him. It's not a happy ending for me. But hopeful endings, right? I mean, Hector loses his brother early in this book. That's not a happy ending for his family, but hopeful endings, that's much more realistic. And I think if I'm a, a child reading your book in a detention center, if I am someone struggling and reading this book and I'm learning that other people are struggling, a hopeful ending is something realistic for, for me to strive for and to know that, no, not everything that's broken gets put back together. Not everyone who's lost is found. But enough can be fixed and enough of us can meander into maybe a place that we didn't expect to go and that there can be hope on that journey. I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of kids, it's not possible to, to jump out of bad, a bad housing situation, for example, you know, or, or to get out of a detention center. So, so what, is, what is hope for them? You know, hope for them has to be some kind of acceptance that they are a good person despite everything, you know, that they are worth, that, that life is worth living and that life is worth trying. And and so sometimes I think we have to kind of, just like we have to redefine happiness, we have to redefine hope. You know, hope is, is not always the expectation of success at the other end of rainbows. You know, it's sometimes sometimes hope is just a realization that that what you're doing is worth doing regardless of the outcome. I like that. That's reminding me of the chess illusions in your in your book. One of the reasons I kept reading is because I like chess. I should be very clear. I am not a chess player. You strike me as a chess player from this book. Are you a chess player? <laughs> I play chess, but I'm not, not at the level that Hector, you know, the Hector plays. And I had to, I had to do some research, you know, for, for this, uh, for this book. <laughs> well, so one of the things my father was able to do before he passed away was he taught my son, who was then probably seven, how to play chess, which I thought was great. And then I played chess with my my son. My dad gave him a chess set. And in the beginning, of course, with a seven-year-old, you you pretend and oh, oh you got my and the, and now my, my son is nine. So this is this is a few years ago, but he's nine now. I I can't beat the boy anymore, right? I I can't so there's something about chess that that levels a playing field. I'm I have yeah. several degrees and I'm I'm a grown-up person and I can drive a car, but my nine-year-old beats me at, at chess. But I'm thinking about your ideas in this book and how to win or lose a game of chess. No one does that without losing many pieces, often important pieces, right? Your, your, your rook and your bishop, if you're going to win or lose at chess, you're not going to have all the pieces and someone have none. Even at my worst chess game, that doesn't happen. So that also seems to factor into what the life is that Hector's living and even a draw, right? A good battle on the chessboard. Those illusions really work in this book. I appreciated them in there. 
you know, the idea of sacrifice, you know, it's chess and baseball are probably the only two, two places where, <laughs> where those work are, or actually that's part of the game, right? It's part of the, yeah, Hector has to lose a lot of, the main thing that you have to sacrifice, I think is some of the ideas about, about yourself, you know, and your expectations, of, uh, and some of the images that you have about, about who you are, you know, and life kind of forces you in many ways to like say, uh, you're not quite that way, you know? Yeah, I think at the beginning of the book, Hector might have described himself as a as a chess player who worked at the Piggly Wiggly. And at the at the end of the book, I won't give the things away, but his his identity is going to change because what happens to us changes us. And how we respond to the things that happen to us become who we are. And along the way, you try to hold on to the things that are dear to you or shift and and do different things. I'm realizing I didn't ask you this earlier and I wish I had. Forgive me for asking about your age, but how old were you when you published your first book? My was, uh, let's see, I think I started writing it when I was 40. It came out in four, five years later, so I was 45. What did it feel like to finally publish a book? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it felt like finally, like I was, like I was on, uh, like I had answered a call that had been there for a long, long time that I had, and I, and I, and I had felt kind of like a little bit of my life had been wasted, you know, for not answering that, you know. And so it felt a little bit like, okay, so so I am a writer, you know. So, so who cares if only three people bought the book? I mean, I, I you know, I got it. Uh, I was proud of the book, you know. And and then I realized that I I had to incorporate that into my into my life, you know, make it part of it somehow. I love that. That reminds me of the. It's often attributed to George Eliot, though I don't know if she ever said that. The idea that it's never too late to be what you might have been. <laughs> okay, so I wish I get to talk to you forever, but it turns out that's not how it works. So I always like to close with some introductory questions. So I'm going to give you some multiple choice questions, and all you do is just pick one. Okay. Are you more of a cat's person or a dog's person? Dog. How about coffee or tea? Coffee, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Mountains or the beach? Mountains. All right. Cake or Pie. Pie. Are you an early bird or a night owl? No, early bird. Early bird. I'm always impressed at people who are early birds. I, I know that in my heart, Toni Morrison used to say that she was brilliant early in the morning, that she was, I think she was brilliant all day long, but it turns out the morning is a, is a good time. I think my brain uh, quits, you know, like around noon. So I got to take advantage. <laughs> Ooh, well, we're running up against the time load here. <laughs> <laughs> are you a risk taker? Or are you the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? <laughs> I think I'm a risk taker. Good, good, good. And these are a few short answer questions. Um, who was one of your best teachers? It's Father Hatcher, who was my high school teacher, my high school teacher, history teacher and, and uh, speech coach. And we're still friends. He's, uh, he, he worked in South Dakota for, for all his life with the Native Americans. And so he's a big influence on me. He's, he's retired now, but he worked at St. Francis Mission in, at the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. And we just, it was just a, uh, it was a school and, and, and a place that served uh, the Native American population there. Well, he sounds wonderful. All right. Shout out to him. What's one of your favorite songs? One of my favorite songs uh, would be uh, Let It Go, the, the song from Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic song. Um, I have tried to karaoke that badly, but my children sing it very well. And what's a book you love? Oh, I think I, I, I love uh, 
Don Quixote by Cervantes. I read that every five years. I, my, you know, my wife taught Spanish at Wellesley College for most of her life, and so she uh, she taught Don Quixote. So she 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 makes me read it, you know, to keep me in line with, uh, you know, trying to be a good person. I remember this book well because when I was taking Spanish, I had the opportunity to read some of it in Spanish, and I always think about charging windmills. Yeah, and and the in and the idea that you should go ahead and pick your windmill. The lesson is not never to charge the windmill or always to charge the windmill, but that if you are going to charge the windmill, to pick it and go for it. And how about your favorite ice cream? Oh, my uh, butter pecan. Pecan. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, and last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy doing something we love, something you love, what would we see you doing? Oh, I would be with my with my grandkids doing, you know, I would set up the sprinkler and we would be running through the sprinkler with my, my four grandkids. <laughs> oh my gosh. How old are your grandkids? Well, they range from nine to 10 months. Oh, that's that's a great image. I, I love that. And an image of you running through the sprinkler with your grandchildren. Oh, Francisco Stork, I'm, I'm so thankful that you were able to spend time with us here today. Um, I have some takeaways from this conversation. For anybody who's listening, don't put a time limit on your dreams folks. Be open to being lost and found. Be open to these soul detours and the idea of, if not a happy ending, a hopeful ending. I'm going to be thinking about do-overs and how we're taught in life that there are no do-overs, but I don't think that's true. Uh, you didn't <laughs> love being a lawyer and now you're a writer and there's these, there's these great lessons in here about it's never too late to be what you might have been. So folks who are listening, I don't know what you're waiting for. Think about who and what you want to be and go do it. My guest today has been Francisco X. Stork. You can find his ninth novel, On the Hook, at an independent bookstore near you here in Cleveland. That might mean Max Bax, Apple Tree, or Loganberry Books. I'm wishing you, uh, Francisco Stork, well. And I'm wishing everyone who's listening love and light wherever this takes this day takes you. Till next time, be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we will see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, 
parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.